Hey all you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello and welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about Dragon Age and its lore. I am one of your hosts, Austin, also known as Teacup, and I am here with our resident lore master when it comes to Dragon Age. You gotta hit me with that when it comes to Dragon Age specifier, I see. Yeah, actually, yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. That's fine. Uh, I'm Shelby, also known as Teacup. I'm the lore master for this show, but not our other show. Um, are you ready to talk about some Dragon Age? I am. It's been a long time since you've asked me that question. I know. So I'm really, 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 really excited for today's episode. And I know you know why. Yes, I do know why. And I'm sure all the listeners know why, because they can see the title of this episode and they know that I guess at least most of you should know that we are officially talking about my favorite character today, which means by the end of this episode, we will have discussed both mine and Austin, your favorite character. That's true. We've we've covered a lot of the main party members. So, I mean, honestly, going forward in season six, we're probably like not going to be doing a character deep dive once a month because we may not... We may not have uh, enough characters, but the numbers are for sure dwindling. So what I'm hearing is that if they want more character deep dives, Dreadwolf's got to come out with some new companions. Yeah, there's that. And also I am exaggerating a little bit because I completely forgot. We're also going to do character deep dives on like non-party companions. And I forgot about that. So there's that too. But let's get into the topic for today because we're talking about Cassandra and I love her and I'm just ready to get into it. So let's go. Let's get into some fun facts. So first and foremost, you might think based on Inquisition's gameplay that Cassandra only has four middle names. Only. She has a lot of middle names. That's a lot. But she probably has more than four middle names. And I think that a dev confirmed this on Twitter, but I couldn't find the reference. Um, But we just don't know what the rest of her middle names are. And the reason why this was like a popular headcanon back in the day, and then it got confirmed on Twitter is because in the cutscene where you're at the winter palace and they start listing off all of her names, she cuts off the announcer before they can finish. And so that kind of implies, implies that there are more names she just did not let them continue her name so the names that we know of for her her full name so far is cassandra allegra portia caligira philomena pentagast you know it gives the same energy as 
you know, the first time in the fifth Harry Potter book when Dumbledore comes in and he says all of these names and it ends with Brian Dumbledore. Right. (laughs) But there's no Brian equivalent in, in her name. No, not really. So the next couple fun facts I have are um, that she actually suffered from pretty severe hay fever as a child. And so her brother, Anthony, joked around that she should just go punch a tree in retaliation because hay fever comes from trees. And so she did that and found it to be very helpful for her. And so now when she suffers a hay fever bout, she will be found often punching trees. That is the most Cassandra story I've ever heard in my entire life. Cassandra also has some unused dialogue in Dragon Age 2 from a quest where she encounters Hawk in Kirkwall, which I desperately want to see i wish we could see that um but alas that was cut but also cassandra is 78th in line to the navarran royal throne but and then the last fun fact that i have is that cassandra is also the youngest person to have ever become a seeker since the storm age so let's get into cass's general biography um We don't know her exact birth date, but we do know that she was born sometime between 903 and 904 Dragon, and she is a member of the Navarran royal family, the Pentagast family. She's also a seeker and the right hand of the divine, like I mentioned earlier, and after Inquisition, she can do a few different things, but we'll get to that at the end of the episode. And also, Cassandra was not born at home or in the Navarran equivalent of a hospital, she was born in a carriage halfway between the cities of Cumberland in Navarra and Valshavan in Orlais. I feel like this perfectly and completely fits her character. She's not a person who's indecisive, who waffles around. She's a person who knows what she's going to do, and she goes after that goal with gusto. So I think it makes sense that she would come into the world in a similar way. Her goal was to be born and she was going to be born. You know, my brother was born in a similar fashion in that he was born in the hallway of a hospital. And my mom always said that summed up their relationship of he's going to do what he wants to, whether or not she says so or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Cassandra's parents were Lord Matthias and Lady Tagana Pentagast. They raised her at their family estate in Navarra City until 910 Dragon. In 910 Dragon, her parents sided with a group who was attempting to overthrow King Marcus Pentagast. As a result, the king ordered the executions of all who were involved with this group. His court also advised him to execute all of the immediate family members of everyone involved. However, King Marcus refused to kill Cassandra and her brother Anthony for several reasons. First and foremost is because they were children who had nothing to do with the the treason at all. And secondly, because they were also his family. They were also Marcus's family. So as a result, Cassandra and Anthony were then basically released into their care of their father's 
um, brother, their uncle, Vestalis Pentagast, and he was actually a senior member of the Mortalitasi. Now, as a reminder, the Mortalitasi are mages. They're a special subset of mages, often referred to as death mages, um, because of their specialization, basically, in um, necromancy. Right, which we talked about in, I believe, both our Navara episode and our magic episode. After they, or when they moved to be with their uncle, they then moved to live at the Grand Necropolis. So keep that in your back pocket. I wouldn't want to live there. So I, I can't imagine how that would change my opinions of magic if I lived there. But remember that. So in 912 dragon, which is about two years after their parents have died, their uncle Vestalis became a prelate of the Mortalitasi. And so like a prelate, I had to look this up because I didn't even know. A prelate is basically like a governor or a bishop, essentially a high important leader, usually in a religious setting. Um, so it's interesting to me that the Mortalitasi use this as a term for its leaders because they're not really a religion, um, but they may see themselves that way. So that was just an interesting little tidbit there. But because of this, because of their uncle taking on this promotion, he then didn't spend as much time with them as he had over the past two years that they had been in his care. So for much of the rest of their childhood, Cassandra and Anthony, they live very isolated lives. And it gives me very much sad Victorian child energy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very lonely. They're very isolated. Cassandra... Cassandra more than Anthony. Um, But during this time, they both embraced swordsmanship and they both dreamt of becoming dragon hunters like other members of their family. However, Cassandra, they placed more restrictions on her because she was a girl and she actually came to resent this and came to resent her family as well as all of Navarra because they kept her in what she called a gilded cage. Now that you say that, like, Navarra very much does read and code as, like, Victorian England. Because there's, like, a high emphasis on the Chantry there, a high emphasis on Station, and, like, Cassandra has all these names. She knows exactly how far in line she is to the throne, like, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities there. So... Let's skip forward about four years to 916 Dragon. So at this point in time, Cassandra's 12 years old. She has lived with her uncle and her brother for half her life at this point. And by this time, Anthony has actually become a pretty well-renowned dragon hunter. Unfortunately, he was then targeted by a group of blood mages who needed dragon blood for their rituals. Anthony refused to help them, and they immediately killed him by beheading him. And Cassandra witnessed all of this. Understandably so, she was enraged. She was furious, absolutely furious at the death of her brother, and by the injustice of the mages going free. And I'm sure all of this was compounded even more by her frustration at being kept from pursuing what she was interested in and living the life that she wanted. 
So Cassandra goes to her uncle and begs him, begs him to let her be sent to the Templars so that she can avenge her brother, Anthony. And remember, her uncle is a mage. So you you can probably imagine he would probably feel like this is a bit of a slap in the face. And so he does not let her go to the Templars. Instead, he sends her to the Seekers. And that's a big turning point in her life. And so we'll get into that a little bit now. Um, but do you have thoughts first? I, this is where I take issue with like the writers of Dragon Age. You pop open Dragon Age Origins. You're thrown into that character creator and everything. And it says this about gender. It says not many differences exist. Male and female member, men and women basically can take on the same roles in the world of Thetis. And then they make that assertion. And then throughout the rest of the series and all the content we get, we get this kind of established sexism. So my question to my Dragon Age is like, which is it? Does it exist? Does this status quo exist or doesn't it? And even within Dragon Age Origins itself, if you pick yourself as a woman who, if you're a female noble, your mom was this big battle warrior. And still people come up like, oh, you're a woman and you're a warrior. Right. And even also going back to Origins 2, if you play the City Elf origin, your mother, also a warrior, worked with Liliana when she was a bard. Like, And still people are like, oh, you're an elf and a woman? I didn't know elves and women can be warriors. So I absolutely think you're right. Um, and it's very frustrating. I think if it was just like one of these things, we could write it off. Like, I think a lot of people fixate on the conversation that Sten has with a female warden. Um, but I give that one at least a pass because of Kunari society. Like most of the women are not in the warrior roles, but some of this other stuff is more egregious, like ambient dialogue about women can't be warriors. Um, Cassandra's story, like, so many so many stories um where it's like this is not doing what you thought it was gonna do and so i genuinely think that this is one of two things i think it's either and it frankly could be both but i think it's either a the writer having internalized misogyny or just outright being misogynistic plain and simple or i think it's a case of the writer writing a great backstory and feeling like hey this this would really make the character pop and then forgetting parts of the world that make this not make sense and then them not having like a quality control department to check that and be like hey lore wise this is inconsistent it, it's just it's a lot of conflict and i think you're right uh, i think it's probably both of those things and at least in this case with cassandra it's probably cassandra's writer being like oh this makes a really good story and like this really explains who cassandra is and then just either not knowing or just forget or just like completely disregarding what has been established in the world before yeah. And I'll say, I think Cassandra is an extremely well-written character. I do have issues um, with the writer, which we'll get into later. But overall, I think she is a well-written character. 
But let's get back into the Seekers a little bit. So she goes to the Seekers at the age of 12. And earlier I mentioned that she's the youngest person to become a Seeker since the Storm Age. But she's sent to the Seekers at a very much older than everyone else. Um, And so her arriving to the Seekers is very unusual because most children who go there are sent at a very, very young age. Like, oh, I'm going to promise my third child to the Seekers kind of situation. Almost like Jedi sent to them very, very young. Um, But she was accepted as an older seeker, as an older potential seeker, rather, um, due to the circumstances of her brother's death and because she is of noble birth. So she's accepted at age 12. And she goes to seeker training at their fortress in Montsimard, which is in Orlais. And she's apprenticed to a senior seeker, and his name is Byron. And his training for her is mostly spent in religious education rather than an education in fighting and physical training, because part of it is she's got a little bit of that already, but he focuses on the religious aspect of it. She's frustrated and is like, that. this is not what I wanted to do. But eventually she kind of realizes like why he wants her to have this foundational knowledge. And she gives in and she does excel at her studies. And so when she's 15, after three years of training, she underwent the vigil to become a seeker in full in full rights. And so she does this in a very remote castle in the blasted hills of Northern Orlais. And this occurs in about 919 Dragon. And she does succeed, as we know. Um, and like I said earlier, at 15 years old, she becomes a full seeker and is the youngest seeker since the Storm Age. So she's both the oldest and the youngest in some ways. Right. Well, look at if we compare this, this is a similar story. Look at Anakin Skywalker. He is taken to the Jedi at an old age before they would induct him. But then he's the youngest Jedi ever named to the Jedi Council. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's very similar. Only, thank God, they don't have similar end stories. <laughs> right. And I just really laughed at this, like, this is such like a trope in storytelling, the training of like, I want to be like badass and fight. And everyone's like, no, nah, you're going to train your mind instead. You know, in the inheritance cycle, Aragon, I want to learn all these cool spells to do all these cool things and things. Ormus, grammar. Yeah. And like even even um, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, we've, we've gone to Star Wars already. If you read the Master and Apprentice novel, Qui-Gon literally has Obi-Wan practicing the different um, lightsaber forms for so long without letting him specialize in one. And Obi-Wan's constantly like, why can I not advance more? Like, why are you making me do this? And again, it's it's to be disciplined. It's to understand these things on a deeper level because anybody can throw their fist around. Anybody can kick somebody in the face. Anybody can learn that, but you, you have to practice what it means to be disciplined. Right. And I think it comes, I think it also comes down to seeker training, especially given what we know about the seekers and how they're created and their vigil and everything. I think it takes a religious understanding before a spirit of faith is going to come down and touch your mind. 
Yes, I definitely agree with that. So we do know a quite a bit more about her time in the Seekers before we see her um, in Dragon Age 2. So a lot of that content comes from the Dawn of the Seeker animated movie. So we'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, and like I said, this is an animated movie. And it's similar-ish to the art style of Absolution. Um, it's okay. It's not the best. I enjoyed it because I love Cassandra. Um, but there are some things I hate about it. Like, I hate the costuming for her in this movie because they basically have her like in a skimpy little battle in a skimpy little battle skirt. And I just feel like she would never, ever be okay with wearing that even as like a teenager. Um, but other than that, I do think it's a, it's a pretty good look into her personality, her character and what motivates her as a person. And we get so much about her backstory in this. So let's dive in. So according to the World of Thetis Encyclopedia, Volume 1, this movie and all of the events that it depicts occur in 922 Dragon. So this is about eight years before the Fifth Blight starts, 10, 18 years or so before Dragon Age Inquisition. So in the movie, a group of blood mages have kidnapped a young elven girl named Avexis. The Seekers have been called in to rescue the girl. They kill most of the mages, but they are not able to kill the leader of this mage group. When they return, the High Seeker refused to return the girl to the circle of mages as he wanted to keep her in custody because she's apparently super dangerous because of her power. Cassandra's mentor, Byron, has discovered a conspiracy at the same time. And so he instead takes Avexis to a friend that he deems to be safe. Cassandra goes with him, but they are attacked. Byron is then killed and blood mages take Avexis. Cassandra is then captured by the Templars, who are led by Knight Commander Martell, and she's branded a traitor alongside Byron and his friend, even though Byron is dead. So Cassandra then tries to clear her name. And while she's doing this, she learns that this group of blood mages has also been plotting to attack and assassinate the current divine. And the current divine at this time is divine Beatrix III. So this is the divine right before divine Justinia V. So Cassandra also gets injured in another fight and is helped by the friend of Byron, who we then learn is named Regalian de Marcal, also called Galleon. Cassandra opens up to him about Anthony's death after he's basically like, why are you being so hostile to me? Um, later on in the movie, at the end, they share a kiss and it implies that they develop a relationship afterwards, yada, yada. Years later, Galleon does die at the conclave that takes place right before Inquisition. Eventually, Cassandra discovers that the traitor is actually the Knight Commander of the Templars, who is working with the Blood Mages to assassinate the Divine. Shocker of all surprise. They attempt to get away from this Knight Commander, but they're unsuccessful. 
and they're then imprisoned and scheduled to be executed. They do eventually escape from the prison. And so Cassandra, when she escapes, goes and she fights the night commander and they end up having to do like a 1v1 duel. And at this point, she wins the fight, but is then attacked by the blood mages who still are controlling Avexis and who also have several dragons on their side. So, as you know, Cassandra comes from a long line of dragon hunters, and so she's able to easily fight off the dragons. Like, she knows the tricks to take down the dragons. When one of the dragons goes directly for Divine Beatrix, she intervenes and saves Divine Beatrix from death. And so then, you know, they they figure out the rest of the fight. She keeps fighting she eventually wins along with her allies and is able to kind of explain everything that happens. And so as a result of all of this, at the end of the movie, Cassandra is proclaimed as the hero of Orlais, similar to the hero of Ferelden, and she's proclaimed to be the right hand of the divine. Later on in a private conversation, the divine meets with Cassandra, where she insists that this attack is only the beginning. And this is the quote, a storm is coming and the chantry must be prepared. Cassandra asks, like, how can I help? And the divine gives her a book that is the book that's granting her the authority to restore and reform the Inquisition of old. So, that occurs, all of that occur in 922 Dragon. So Cassandra has the rights to reform the Inquisition for like almost 20 years before it actually happens or right at 20 years before it actually happens. She must have like really thought like, okay, this this like is a last ditch effort kind of thing and so and she very much implies that the conclave was divine justinia's last attempt before she herself formed the inquisition so cassandra playing not a stranger to playing the long game no not at all um it was just it was just so crazy to me that she has that for that long um I genuinely, like, wasn't expecting that to have been the case. Right, that makes... I mean, I agree with you 100%. I thought she got that... I thought she got that right from Justinia. But it was from Beatrix. And... Yeah, it's just interesting to me. And it kind of puts into perspective of, like... As left and right hand of the divine, carrying something that's written in the divine's hand, I'm just really curious how the Chantry is able to be like, okay, like, no, you're not real. Like, none of this is real. I think that's a fair point. And also, I wonder, you know... Divine Beatrix gave this to her. So, like, when Divine Beatrix does die and Justinia comes on the scene, it's like, does she just go to her and be like, hey, the old divine gave me this. You have to honor it now. Like, how does that work? Right. I mean, it comes to a point of, like, obviously, Divine Justinia trusts Cassandra enough to keep her on his right hand because she's the one who appoints her 
appoints Liliana as left hand of the divine. Yeah. But also I think part of it is that supposedly Beatrix and um, mother Dorothea, who is divine Justinia before she becomes divine, they were close friends. So it was kind of like Beatrix almost appointed Justinia anyway. So she would like, of course she would keep the same people because she trusted them all too. Right. That makes sense. Um, But do you have thoughts about Dawn of the Seeker? I know you've seen it. So did you like it? You know, what'd you think about it? I liked it. I thought it, it, it feels very dragon agey. It feels like a dragon age story. Uh, The animation is not the best. I don't, love Cassandra's like you said I don't like her design or her costuming but I do like the story and the story is very like there's nothing that like points to it like oh my god this is lore breaking they're ruining everything about Dragon Age it's just it's an animated movie that gives you a little bit of Cassandra's backstory yeah and I mean I think I criticize her her design uh quite a bit but also like She's like 17, 18 or so in this. So, you know, she's a young kid, like she's a teenager. So, of course, she's going to look and act a little bit differently than she does when we meet her in Inquisition. Right. But I will say in that movie, if you want to see like what it means for these Pentagos to have like this line of dragon hunting, you need to watch the fight sequences of that movie because when Cassandra goes into those dragons, she is not just like swinging or fighting at a dragon. She is jumping on it and hitting its vital spots. Like she knows exactly where to hit this thing to take it down. Yes, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about Dawn of the Seeker later at the end of this episode because I have a few like discussion things I want to talk about. Um, But right now let's get into... Dragon Age 2 and her serving as the right hand of the divine. So I know I just talked about um, Dawn of the Seeker, but really the first place we ever see Cassandra is Dragon Age 2. And that's because it came out before Dawn of the Seeker. Um, And so, you know, we meet her opening of the game. She's violently interrogating Varric about basically the events of the game. And she and Varric serve as co-narrators of this game. We obviously learn that at the end of the game that she's interrogating him to find out where Hawk went in the aftermath of Anders' terrorist attack and the outbreak of the Mage Templar War. And we also know that her and Liliana are using or attempting to use the writ that Divine Beatrix left Cassandra to form the Inquisition. Um, throughout the game, Cassandra repeatedly interrupts Varric, ordering him to be truthful and stop exaggerating. It's pretty funny because Cassandra clearly has the wrong idea about who Hawk is and even who Varric is, because she thinks that all of Hawk's dealings with like the blood mages, the raiders, the Cunari, the gangs, all of that mean that Hawk is aligned with the Chantry, which is not necessarily true. I think Hawk can be for sure, but not necessarily. Um, So throughout the game, we see Cassandra change her mind about Hawk um, and not just about Hawk, but also about Hawk's friends and companions. 
If Hawk dueled the Arashok 1v1, Cassandra says that it, quote, sounds romantic, like it's something out of a fairy tale, which shows some of her character back then, um, before we got her more fleshed out romance. And then, of course, when Varric finishes the story, Cassandra is taken aback, and she reflects on it and comes to the conclusion that Meredith is the central cause of all of the chaos and rebellion in Kirkwall. Varric, interestingly, is the one who suggests that the idol and or Anders is equally responsible. Cassandra grants Varric his freedom, and then she asks Liliana what they should do about the Inquisition. Liliana's advice for her is to trust in the maker. So what I find so interesting about this whole scene is that Cassandra is the one that says Meredith is to blame for all of this. Varric disagrees and is like, well, Anders and the idol share a large percentage of it. But we never, ever accuse Varric of being anti-mage, anti-magic. But we we accuse Cassandra of that all the time. I see that so often that people dislike her because she's anti-mage. And it's like, well, no, she's sitting here holding Meredith accountable, not, not Anders, the mage who started all this, not Orsino, mm-hmm. but Meredith. And like, this is important to note. We all love Varric, but if you really watch his approval and the things you gain approval for with Varric, it's not like, I mean, it's no like Fenris anti-mage and it's no like anti-mage in other ways in Inquisition. But like, if you get disapproval, if you ask about Orsino's fate in just a random thing, like Varric does not like the abuse of magic and he is very much against it in a lot of ways. When asked about Anders, in a lot of ways, Varric will say, don't remind me, I'm the one who introduced them. Yeah, so we'll get into some discussion about, like, what are Cassandra's actual views on magic and all of that later. But I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's a very interesting, like, hypocritical take that I see all the time on the Internet. Um, but before we continue, let's go to our mid-break. Ah, Hawk stepped in the poopy. I love you. Want a sandwich? All this for me. And I didn't get Alexius anything. Send him a fruit basket. Everyone loves those. All right, well, welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about everything to do with the podcast, but not Dragon Age lore. And it's here that we thank our patrons. So a special thank you to our first patrons, Genesis and Lisa M. A special thank you to our divine tier patron, Kit. And our very, very special thank you to our Nug King patron, Lewis H. And if you would like to support us in Patreon, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash lorecast and signing up for our various tiers there where you can get ad-free episodes all the way up to coming on to the show with us if you sign up at our $20 tier. And so, yeah, you can do that. Another great way to support us is to leave us ratings and reviews on Apple or Spotify. If you leave us five stars and some kind words, we'll read it out on the future episode of the show. And we have a review from Apple to read today. So Shelby, you want to share that with us? 
Yeah, so this one is from Fallen Angel Yoko on Apple, and they said, love listening to this while at work to get a better understanding of the game's lore. I even got a laugh when you guys said that Dragon Age and Mass Effect are in the same universe, which I think is true because there is a Darkspawn Ogre in Mass Effect 2 and a Krogan head mounted on the wall in Dragon Age Inquisition. Thank you so much for that awesome review, Fallen Angel Yoko, and I do have to tell you, we will talk about the Krogan again in this podcast uh, probably in a couple months or so. So stay tuned. Ooh, interesting. Yes, thank you for that support. And the last thing is, if you want to come hang out with us on the internet, you can join our Discord. You can basically hang out with us and talk about this podcast, our Assassin's Creed podcast, Star Wars, any game that comes to mind, share vid- videos, pictures of your pets, talk about all kinds of stuff. It's a great place to hang out. You can find that link on in the episode description or by going to cupspodcasting.com and finding it there. And I believe that's all I have for the middle of the show. All right. Well, let's get back into it. <laughs> Up there, giant icicle tits. Ice tittles. You're looking for titsicles. Oh, that's good. Yes, and it's a real nice night for an evening. Um... Oh, you fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. So, in Dragon Age Inquisition, she's a main character, we know this. Let's get into it. So, following the explosion at the Conclave that ignites the breach cassandra interrogates your player character the one who does eventually become the inquisitor she's furious accuses you of causing the breach due to the mark on your hand obviously we know that our player characters did nothing of the sort and were innocent bystanders in the situation cassandra though doesn't know this at the time but regardless she gives you a chance and as we know history is made with the inquisition being reborn um we're not going to go over everything that happens in inquisition because you can just play the game but i want to focus on a couple major plot points with Cass. so first of all is the seekers and the chantry One of the main major plot points of this game and of the Book Asunder is the split between the Seekers of Truth, the Templars, and the Chantry. So the Seekers of Truth and the Templars split away from the Chantry. They don't necessarily form together, uh, but they both split from the Chantry. Cassandra is unique because she's a seeker who did not abandon the Chantry. I would imagine she probably has a lot of grief and conflicted feelings about seeing her fellow seekers leave the Chantry, leave the religion and the organization that she's still serving. I know I would. Um, So she is a deeply pious person who has a real and sincere belief in the maker, which is why she does not abandon the Chantry. She has no reason um, for staying in the Chantry other than like the real reasons. Like she does not stay in the Chantry because of her role as the right hand. She doesn't stay in the Chantry because she thinks she can become divine. She stays with the Chantry because she truly believes in the religion that it proclaims. But throughout the game, she wrestles with her faith a lot because she's constantly seeing and being confronted by things that differ from and challenge her beliefs and what the Chantry has always told her. Some of these include, and I do have a list. Some of these include 
what appears to be divine Justinia appearing in the flesh after she's dead, learning that the seeker's ritual is actually just the rite of tranquility, learning that the seekers hid a cure for the rite of tranquility intentionally for decades and perhaps even centuries, and potentially an elf, dwarf, or cunari being chosen by the maker to lead the Inquisition. So these challenges, um, both religious and just about her life in general, put her in a place in Inquisition where she's questioning everything. We see this in cutscenes where she basically asks the Inquisitor, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, can you help me? And the Inquisitor can be supportive or not. That's your choice. But one specific way that you can support Cassandra in her crisis of faith is by encouraging her to rebuild the Seekers. If asked how she would go about rebuilding the Seekers, Cassandra states that she plans to find all of the scattered Seekers, have them all read the Book of Secrets together, which would leave no more secrets between any of them, and that she would then establish a new charter that would be devoted to doing the Maker's work. Although Cassandra is unsure of the specifics of what doing the Maker's work entails, she believes that the new Seekers must make a conscious effort of seeking out and defining that purpose. The Inquisitor can choose to support this reformation of the Seekers or not. And you can also further inquire about the cure to tranquility in conversations with her. Cassandra states that she plans to further investigate whether the cure can be refined enough so that a cured mage can reverse the right of tranquility without being overcome by their emotions. If she succeeds in this, she intends to spread news of the refined cure herself throughout Thetis. And then the last major plot point I want to talk about in Inquisition is the election of the new divine, of Divine Victoria. And you may know that you can elect Cassandra as divine. If you elect her, she does enact reforms for a new Templar order and a new circle of Magi. The Seekers of Truth, if she was encouraged to rebuild the order, are rededicated to their purpose of protecting the innocent, like I just talked about. Depending on her approval with the Inquisitor, the Chantry can either be steadfast allies to the Inquisition or have a very strained relationship with the Inquisition. Despite her popularity, because Divine Victoria as Cassandra is pretty popular with the people, probably the most popular if I had to guess, there... The reforms uh, that she makes are seen by some as going too far still. Her efforts to stabilize peace were generally pretty successful, and Southern Thetis does see peace for a time. So I want us to have a little bit of discussion about her major plot points in Inquisition. Any thoughts you have about the Seekers, the Chantry, or the Divine? Well, I think that one thing that I want to point out is that I find it really hard, especially since I played Inquisition as an adult, I find it really hard to gain disapproval with Cassandra because most of the things she presents are well-reasoned and well-thought-out-of. And I think if you take this huge, like, 
anti-chantry stance of like burn it all down take it all down the seekers are trash the templars are trash the chantry itself is trash and it needs to all go down you can gain major disapproval with her but i think that at least from like an immersive role playing thing that's a little bit naive of your inquisitor to think that you can remove this institution that has been established in Thetis for nigh on a millennia, if not more, and think that that is not going to cause more problems. Um, and I think Cassandra, Cassandra very much, her plot points center around the fact that she knows there's a problem, but she doesn't want to like, to use an old parable, like throw out the wheat with the tares, to cut out the good cells with the tumor. Like she wants to be able to remove the disease without compromising the integrity of the body. And I think if you did just remove the chantry, if you tore it down or changed it in too many ways that it's no longer serving the function that it is, that Thetis would kind of result in a collapse of some sort something might come up from the ashes but a lot of people would die a lot of people would get hurt if you tear it down or it destroys itself or whatever you do with the chantry if it ceases to exist entirely that is a huge power vacuum in Thetis that someone is going to step up and fulfill someone somewhere, whether it's to venture magisters or some group that's worse than the Chantry or the Seekers or even the Templars themselves. We don't know, but I guarantee most of the options are going to be worse than the Chantry because if the Chantry no longer exists, there's nobody to keep the Templars and the Seekers in check at all. Um, so I agree there's, there would be such a huge power vacuum that it would completely destabilize status. And I think that it would be the opposite, um, in goal than, than what everybody wants. Um, another thing of like, I think it's very obvious, of course, she is the most liked divine. She is the hero of Orlay. She is the one who held it all together in chaos. The everyday people are going to see Cassandra as a champion of them, a champion of peace, a champion of goodness. Like it would I would honestly be very hard pressed to find like a a candidate with more public support than Cassandra. And I think it's why it's so easy to make her divine as opposed to the others. Well, it's easier to make Liliana divine than Cassandra. But yes, I agree that between the two of them, it's it's either of them um, because Liliana is also popular. I mean, she was a bard that served in, in many different nobles courts um, and served the divine for many years. But you're right that Liliana is more secretive by the nature of being the left hand versus the right. Um, but yes, I agree. And I also think that Cassandra's um decisions in in what she does as divine they are the most sustainable choices like the other two both Liliana and Vivian they make rash decisions and and maybe not that's not the right word but they make decisions that are very much like okay we're doing this right now okay we're burning it all down or okay we're rebuilding everything the exact way that i want it to whereas cassandra i think plays more of the long game and that's just more sustainable over time because you let people get used to things and it just it just is systems theory basic 101 
Um, but we've talked about that already tonight and we've talked about that on previous patron chats so go back and listen to some of those old episodes if you want to hear us talk more about the divine election um for now let's get into her romance a little bit and i know that this is not what we normally talk about we sometimes we usually mention their romance um but i want to talk about a few things with it specifically we're not going to go through the whole thing because again you can play the game you can romance her you can watch youtube videos and because there's another podcast that talks about video game romances and you can listen to them that podcast is the two girls one ship and they are amazing um but i do think it would be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk about a romance at all and so here are some of the reasons first and foremost is the nature of her romance she is so romantic she loves love and we see this many times throughout the game, but especially during her cutscenes with Varric. And we learn that she especially loves romance novels, and she especially loves Varric's serial novel, Swords and Shields, which supposedly in game is absolutely trash, smut, basically, but she loves it. Um, and if you romance Cassandra, you learn that her love of romance goes a lot deeper than just like enjoying smutty fan fiction, basically, which who doesn't love some good smutty fan fiction from time to time? Um, but you learn that Cassandra is truly a romantic to her core. She tells you that she wants someone who will, quote, sweep her off her feet and, quote, properly court her with flowers and poetry by candlelight. And she basically tells you straight up, Inquisitor, you're too busy to do any of that. So it's never going to work out between us. Throughout the romance, you gather flowers for her. You gather candles for her and a poetry book. And the two of you meet at a secret hidden grove somewhere that's pretty close, but outside of Skyhold. The Inquisitor then recites poetry for Cassandra, and eventually they make love. So you can see just how deep that romantic nature goes, but she refuses, absolutely refuses to open up and be vulnerable with the Inquisitor until she truly does trust you. So I think this is significant because she's such a strong woman who would literally kick anyone's ass without a second thought. Like, she would beat me up. She would beat you up. She would beat anybody up without a second thought. And she's not a charismatic person at all either. She does not do the talking, playing nice with other people. Like she would, again, rather punch a tree. But she does want that romance and that charisma in her relationship. So she's breaking a lot of stereotypes in that way, I believe. So I do find this romance significant for that reason. The issue that I have with Cassandra's romance is that she's only a romance for men. Supposedly, quote unquote, I have heard this but could not find it confirmed anywhere on the internet. Supposedly, the reason she's only romanceable by men is because they wanted to avoid stereotypes for queer women. But I feel that we've not only been deprived of representation, because how amazing would it have been to see a lesbian or women-loving women relationship that has some of those more traditional elements? That would have been really cool, in my opinion. Um, but unfortunately, this was something that... Um, 
I guess they felt like would be too stereotypical. Um, do you think Cassandra should have been written as probably bisexual? Here is what I believe about this. I think that their statement about wanting to avoid stereotypes is, I think it's a load of, load of crap, in all honesty. honesty. Like, let's look at the only woman-loving woman relationship in the entire gang of Inquisition, which is Sarah, who checks off a million lesbian stereotypes in her whole character. Like that kind of quirky energy, the obsession, the portrayal of like queer people being obsessed with like a sexualized relationship because both her and Dorian are like that. And like both of them want romance and want a real relationship, but they're also hypersexualized in what they do when not all queer people are like that. Not all queer people are on that. Some of them are like Cassandra in that they want that traditional courting of, you know, waiting and engaging in this relationship and engaging in trust and romance and passion. They just want it with someone who is of the same gender or a different gender than them. And I think that you missed out on really avoiding stereotypes by keeping her exactly the same and just making it available for a woman or man. And I think that Bioware actually, they have great representation, but they do not do a good job necessarily of writing queer people in a lot of ways. Um, Well, I would say they have good representation for some groups. To me, I'm like, okay, I don't care what the writer says. This character, she does like women and she likes men and that's fine. So to me, it's like the character has transcended the writing. And it's clear to me in this case, in this scenario, on this point, the writer did not fully understand the character. Um, And I think that that happens a lot. I think it's fine. But it really frustrates me that she's not romanceable by a woman um, or by a female Inquisitor when, like, you're right. It just would have been, it almost falls into more stereotypes, leaving her for a male character only than either or. Uh, And I agree completely about your assessment of Sarah and Dorian, the two like actually lesbian or gay romances. Like they fall into so many, so many stereotypes too. Like Dorian has the gay best friend vibes going on. Sarah has freaking turf bangs. Like, I don't know. It just frustrates me a lot. It it is very, very frustrating. And I, I think I know the answer, but who is her writer? I, If I had to guess, it would be the one who you have problem with every single woman he writes. (laughs) Um, Actually, yeah. Um, So that would be David Gator. But it was actually by David Gator and Jennifer Hepler. They both kind of wrote her together. Hepler is um, also the one who wrote Anders in Dragon Age 2. So I don't know. But I will say... At this point, even though I do, like, support this, I kind of, like, I don't want to see them kind of give Cassandra the Caden treatment in Dreadwolf, where they kind of, like, add a same-sex relationship as an afterthought. And I know there's a lot of people who love the Brochep Caden romance, 
but you know it should have been there as an option from the very beginning in my opinion and i think that that if you're going to keep cassandra as this male only romance just keep her like that and rewrite a new character that's going to be similar but embrace that i don't know what are your thoughts on that my thoughts are no matter what they they do i'm going to be bitching about this for a long time so if they change her and go back retroactively i'm still going to be upset if they keep her the same i'm still going to be upset so frankly it doesn't matter i'm going to be mad regardless okay so bioware disregard shelby's opinion on the matter because she's never going to be happy no listen to what i'm saying do better in the future but on this issue it can't be fixed there are several other issues i also have that cannot be fixed but it's okay i still love them mostly um all right so we see her in two places after inquisition the first is into venter nights and she appears briefly in the chapter called Murder by Death Mages. She's the one that sends the main character of that chapter to Navarra City to stop a Mortalitasi plot to assassinate a member of the Navarran line of succession. And we also see her briefly in Absolution, where Cassandra alongside Liliana briefly appear and they are the ones who have sent Fairbanks and Hera to steal the Circulum Infinitus. All right. Well, let's get into the quotes. So first, this is one of my favorite ones that we see in two in Dragon Age 2. She says, start talking, dwarf. They tell me you're good at it. Which, to be fair, she's not wrong. And then, of course, we have the infamous disgusted noise. Ugh which she says multiple times throughout the series. Um, and then we have another really good one where she says, the circle of Magi has its place, but it needs reform. Let the mages govern themselves with our help. Let the Templars stand not as the jailers of mages, but as protectors of the innocent. We must be vigilant, but we must also be compassionate to all peoples of Thetis, human or not. That is what I would change. And then, of course, she has another very short, quippy little line about her tendency to go with gusto at any of her goals. And she says, I see what must be done and I do it. I see no point in running around in circles like a dog chasing its tail. Iconic. And then we have another great quote about romance where she says, romance is not the sole province of dithering ladies in frilly dresses. It is passion. It is being swept away by the pursuit of an ideal. And lastly, she says, I do nothing that is not worth doing with all of my heart. Um, that last one is one of the best quotes that she has of just like, if you want to understand Cassandra, it's that simple sentence right there. I do nothing that is not worth doing with all my heart. Um, she's not a halfway kind of person. She doesn't do anything unless she fully believes in it. But I really want to talk about to kind of circle back to her quote about the circle of Magi. And this is really why I think her change is the most sustainable. Because her goal isn't to just change the system. Her goal isn't just to change the practices or change who's in charge. 
Her goal is to change the way the Templars and the Chantry view themselves in the relation to the Republic, which is a lot harder to do. But if successful, will be a change that will not be easily undone. I mean, think about it. Every Templar we meet is like, we have to watch the mages. Mages are, diff- are you know, they're dangerous and we have to watch them and we have to do this we have to be vigilant and everything think about it is like we are per are compassionate protectors of the innocent and that being the overarching goal of the templars is a change that will actually lead to a change in the system that will change status forever to the better a lot of people talk about how Cassandra hates mages and she hates magic and she hates Cole, so they hate her. So my question is, does she actually hate mages and magic and why or why not? I don't think she hates mages or magic. I think at the beginning of Dawn of the Seeker, she hates both of them, which is understandably so. They've done nothing but provide... Um, sorrow and destruction in her life but by the end of dawn of the seeker the whole point of that movie is that she starts to see mages as people and enters into a romantic relationship you can't do that if you hate magic and you hate mages cassandra hates things she can't control which is her reservation with cole because she hates things influencing her without her knowledge or like the fact that Cole could do something for her and make her forget probably terrifies Cassandra because she wants to be in control of herself and everything going on there. And Cassandra hates the oppression of the innocent and the defenseless. And so often we see that the people that are doing that are blood mages. So it can come across in that way, but she rails against the Seekers and rails against what the Envy Demon posing as Lord Seeker does to the Templars. She raves against what Lord Seeker Lucius actually does. But when they see like her apprentice Daniel and like what she did to him, like it's almost a blind rage that she comes out. Like she hates when people harm the innocent and defenseless. And I think that's the core of her character. It's all about protection of the innocent. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think your point about Dawn of the Seeker being a movie explaining that she doesn't hate mages, at least anymore, is right on. And I also think if you take her backstory of she literally watched her brother get beheaded by blood mages and then she watches her mentor get killed by blood mages she has every right oh and and how could i forget she watches her ex-lover and her other mentor the divine get murdered in relation to magic with the breach I think she has every right to hate magic a a person who is of like normal substance would hate magic they would have such intense grief over what they've lost and who they've lost that absolutely they would hate magic but cassandra has a stronger backbone than that and she recognizes that like it's not the everyday person who is a magic user who is responsible for the death of my brother and the death of my friends um 
So I think it would it would make sense if she did hate magic, but it shows you just how strong she is that she doesn't. And like Cassandra hates Templars who abuse their power just as much as she hates mages who do as well. And that's why I think it's all about this like protection of the inner innocent and everything about this. And it's similar to, you know, when we talked about when we talk about uh admiral anderson and mass effect or when we talk about bayek from assassin's creed of like these characters who have every reason to be hateful and bitter and to turn their back on the world and choose not to cassandra's the same way she makes a conscious choice to go back and work for the betterment of the world and the betterment for everyone in fact it's a big deal for a seeker to even say let the mages govern themselves with our help. Like, that's not chantering teaching. I think we've established that she does not hate magic. So if you are a cast lover and you see people out in the wild who are talking about how much Cassandra hates mages and magic and all of this, just send them this episode and they can get educated. So where is Cassandra now? She's alive. Yay. I don't think she's killable at all. Um, but there are several different things that she can be doing, depending on your choices. Obviously, she can become divine or she can rebuild the Seekers, as we've already discussed in this episode. But if she doesn't do either one of those things, then she's an advisor for Divine Victoria. If Liliana is divine, she does this permanently. While if Vivian is divine, she eventually leaves the council due to Vivian's political motivations. So she's doing several different things depending on your choices in game. So to close us out today, pretty quickly, why do you love or hate Cass? I love Cass for a very, very simple reason. And it's that Cass is wise. And she's not filling that role of like wise old mentor, but she understands that the world is deeper and more complicated than the institutions want to make it. And she has a very deep understanding of wisdom and gray and that people can be multiple things. And we see that in her quotes of like this very like, I wouldn't even say it's not middle of the road reform for the Chantry. It's really looking at the system and saying, how can we change this so that it changes for the better? Also with her thing about romance and like her whole challenge to that stereotype of like, you think that romance and love and passion and all of these things are things for, you know, little, little girls and dresses, but no, it's about, passion and commitment and intense emotion and Cassandra is, is nothing but emotional. She feels her emotions deeply and extremely. And I love all of that in the representation all wrapped up in this badass warrior who takes off dragons heads single-handedly. I completely agree. And frankly, don't have that much to add, but I would also add that I think, Sometimes with people who think of themselves as wise, especially, you can find a lot of arrogance. Um, and I think we see the opposite of that with Cassandra, because I, I think if you met her like in real life, like if she was real or you got transported to Thetis and you told her that you thought she would wise, I think 
I think she would laugh. I don't think she would agree with that, um, which shows you that most likely she probably is very wise. And another thing that I love about her is that she is not a static person. I think a lot of times with these kind of strong, intimidating, amazing, strong women, especially characters, they have a tendency to be what they are and not grow and not change in any way. Um, I think that's a major flaw of the trope. I think especially of like um, the D&D movie with the the warrior woman in that. And there are some others out there like they are just the strong warrior woman and they're kind of there as a sidekick or as a joke even. And they just stay where they're at. They don't have an arc. And Cassandra is absolutely not that way. She grows so much. She changes so many of her beliefs and not in a way that doesn't make sense in a way that absolutely does make sense because she has to wrestle with like so many existential crises over the course of Inquisition. Um, And I just really love that. And I think that's a great place to leave this episode. So let's wrap it up. All right. Well, a special thank you to all of you who listen. A special thank you to our one and only Nug King, Lewis H. And thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age lore cast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet. You can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Vault Dwellers, join me, Jax's sassy lady Romer, Eric, and the creator, Maverick, as we take topics from the Fallout universe and discuss them with other diverse individuals. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter, or X, or whatever you want to call it, using at FalloutRTV. You can send us an email using FalloutRTV at gmail.com. Join us. The conversation has already started.